Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 188, Intimacy Through Practice. We're joined this week by flamenco guitarist Otmar Liebert to discuss his history with Zen, the way that practice transcends disciplines, and how music and meditation overlap. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined today by a very special guest, flamenco guitarist Otmar Liebert. Atmar, thank you again for taking the time to speak with the Buddhist geeks. We really appreciate it. Oh, no, thank you. And just by way of introduction, I wanted to share a little bit. Like I mentioned, you're a flamenco guitarist. And as I understand, you and your group, uh, Luna Negra, have produced something like 30 studio albums over the course of your career. Could be probably pretty close to that. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how many it is. Just looking at the the list, I mean, it's obvious that you've had a, an incredibly productive career so far and that you've really been able to put out a lot of high-quality music. So from a musician standpoint, I mean, that's a pretty amazing feat. Well, I started late. I've always thought I would get a contract in my 20s and I'd be able to produce music, and I didn't actually get a contract until 30. So I think I decided that I needed to uh, put out more music just to catch up. <laughs> to kind of make up for lost time. And it was funny because the record companies didn't know what to do. They would like, no, you can't put another album out now. It's not time yet. You know, you need to wait. It was pretty funny. That's hilarious. And your newest album, I saw it came out this summer. It's called Pedals on the Path, Mm -hmm. which is interesting because uh, it kind of connects in with the topic we wanted to explore with you, which is Zen practice and its relationship to music. And uh, looking at the title, I, I couldn't help but think that had a lot of sort of Zen imagery and, and Zen uh, language in it. Yes, it does. It was actually, and this is how strange inspiration works sometimes, it was inspired by a letter that the governor, Arnold Schwarzenegger, wrote to the assembly in California. The letter was written in a very special way where if you read the letter normally, it just seems like a simple rejection. But if you look at the lines, the first letter of each line spells F-U-C-K uh, Y-O-U. So um, <laughs> nice. it quickly made it onto the internet and I thought, wow, how cool I could have the title of a record spelled by the first letters. And so for actually probably a couple months, I kept looking for some kind of haiku that would spell pop. And I found the number and I came up with a few and then a friend of mine just slashed one to five words or four words and that's what we ended up with nice so pedals on the path is pop great pop yeah great simple so something probably most of your fans may not know about you and i don't hear you sort of speaking about this while you're performing or anything is that you actually have a history as a zen practitioner in the zen tradition Mm -hmm. i was wondering if you could just share a little bit of the story behind how you got into Zen, and then maybe also where you are with it now. Uh huh. Well, actually, the story goes way back because I was raised Catholic. I was an altar boy, 
But when I was probably about 14 or 15, somewhere in that area, I had a discussion with the uh, parish priest about the devil. I said, I understand if it's an allegory, I understand if it's a, a teaching tool, what's the deal? And he said, no, the devil is real. And I said, come on, horns, sulfur, got to be kidding. And he said, no, it's an essential part of being a Catholic. And I said, okay, here are my robes, I'm out. And in Germany, there's a thing that at first look is really strange, but if you give a second peek, it's actually quite useful, and that is, it's a failed separation of church and state, and the German government will take out 10% of anybody's paycheck that goes to the church that they go to. And so what happens, at 16, you reach religious freedom, and it's also the, the age at which you can go into a bar and drink, which I think is an interesting connection. And so when I was 16 or 17, I had to go to an office, Catholic church office, and sign out. So I am not a lapsed Catholic, like people would be here, for example, in the States. I am no longer a Catholic. I had to sign a thing. And I think it actually said something that I know that I'm going to hell now sort of thing. Hmm. Um, and I had to do that to actually officially get out so I wouldn't no longer pay 10% of my income to, to the church. Since I did it when I was 16, I worked in a factory for six weeks. I was like, this is hard earned money. I'm not going to give that to a church that thinks the uh, devil smells of sulfur. Then also at 15, so this must have been right after I did that, I started doing meditation. I learned transcendental meditation and did that daily, I think two times 20 minute meditations. And I started playing guitar when I was 12. So somewhere around there after 15, the process started of just paring down religions. Um, I was very fortunate that in my school there was a religion class, but instead of being about one religion. It was a comparative religion class. And so we learned about all sorts of different religions. And I started paring it down at what is essential. And I ended up probably around age 17 thinking that, you know, Zen is really the thing. It's as little as is necessary for me. And it's just the bare essentials of what spirituality is about. So at 19, I traveled to Japan thinking that I would maybe stay in a monastery there and become a Zen Buddhist. That just didn't seem to happen. But from then on, I pursued it. But every once in a while, I'd find out about another Zen teacher. But I just never got that sort of connection, you know, where Ken says you have to, to fall in love with a teacher. That's um, Ken Wilber. Yeah. And so that never happened for me until I met uh, Genpo Roshi, uh, and that was at Ken's house in Boulder in, I think it was January of 2004, and I think I met Roshi again in Santa Fe in the summer of 2004 and asked him to become a Zen Buddhist, and since I was a teenager, I had read a lot about Zen, and I was perfectly prepared to get the three or four rejections and so he was standing in my kitchen and I said, I, I want to become a Zen Buddhist. And he just goes, okay. And I said, well, isn't, aren't you supposed to say no? And he said, no, we don't do that anymore, which I thought was pretty hilarious. <laughs> that is hilarious. So then I think in December of 2004, I did my first session 
in uh, Salt Lake City at Kanzeon. I remember in the evening after the day was done, people were asking me, what do you think? What do you think? How was it? And I said, well, first of all, I've meditated most of my life. And second of all, I'm a musician. I'm used to practicing. I've practiced music even longer than I've done sitting. And so I really see no difference to me. Practicing music or practicing Zen is, there's really no difference. That's really interesting because I noticed on your diary page that you talk mm -hmm. about practice in the letters to a young musician, which I, I guess mm -hmm. is a play on the letters to a young poet. Yes, it is. You mention at the end, I think of almost every one of them, you emphasize practice mm -hmm. um, as part of the musical path. And it sounds like for you, there's not really a difference. Given that, I wondered also if you could say a little bit about the importance of practice, I guess, like what you found both practicing Zen and music, why mm -hmm. practice is so essential. Well, First of all, it's really difficult for me to differentiate because I've been practicing since I was 11 and that's a really long time. So to me, it's sort of like trying to verbalize what it is to breathe. It's just something I do. I think anything worthwhile takes practice, whether that's having a decent handwriting skills. And I'm mentioning that because I'm helping my son write. But pretty much everything in life that's, to me, of any value is not something that you just go out and do. It's something that you involve yourself mentally and physically in. That means practice. I mean, and really, it's inherent in everything about our growth. I mean, walking takes practice. If you see a toddler moving about, their head goes forward, and then they keep themselves from falling by moving their legs. You know what I mean? It's just like they totally. lean forward and then just sort of stumble. So I can't really separate that. I think practice is a really, really important thing in human life. And you can always tell when somebody is a practitioner. It doesn't have to be a Zen practitioner or a musician. It can be somebody who does a certain profession, whether it's weaving or anything you can tell if they have practice about it or take a mechanic an old-fashioned mechanic where you drive your car and he starts it up and he goes oh the timing is off you know what i mean everything about that the car is internalized the sound of it the feel of it he'll be able to tell something about an old-fashioned car just from practice so i guess the question that comes to mind immediately is are these things practice for something different? Are they essentially practicing ah. something similar? Um, because it seems like in, in your mind that the, the practice component is really connected and integrated, but is a meditation cultivating something different than um, musical practice would be? And if so, can we talk about what those differences are? If they're different, they're largely overlapping, I think. There is a part of practice that I think is inherent in all different practices. The type of concentration, the familiarity, the intimacy that you get to whatever you're practicing, whether it's archery or Zen or music or how to make a perfect pancake. Mm. You won't get there unless you get intimate with a subject. And if you become, the more intimate you become, you only get there through practice, and as you become more intimate, you know more about it, where you can say, this batter is too liquid, 
or too solid or too warm, too cold. It'll act this way. And all that comes only through practice. And I think it comes often up in conversations with my friends about how people go about life these days that they're really not willing to practice anything. The other day we got into talking about genes and, you know, there's only one one of the old-fashioned wooden looms in America, and I think it's actually in Raleigh, North Carolina. All the other ones were shipped to Japan, and that's in the 50s, and that's where you get the superior denim because people are willing to make things by hand and become intimate with it, whereas a lot of people in the United States or in Europe will just go, I'll, uh, I'd rather buy 10 pairs at Walmart than buy one pair of really good jeans, even though the really good pair will probably outlast the 10 pairs they have buy at Walmart. So there is a lack of that, you might say, depth that comes from not practicing, from not practicing a craft. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does. It's, it's an interesting point because one interview I did with a fellow named Hokai Sobel, he was talking about how this medieval model for apprenticeship was that one practiced their craft for many, many years, living with their master, and then became mm-hmm. sort of a journeyman, which I know, I guess in Germany is still a, it's still oh, a yeah, practice I was just going to say, you don't have to go that far back. You can right. do that right now in Germany, where for three years, you basically do any everything starting with just cleaning up the bakery every day. And after that, you're expected to do several years as a journeyman going to different bakeries before you open your own bakery. So that old medieval model is still alive and well and produces results. You don't have to go to university. There are lots of other really wonderful and rich professions out there that in Europe you can just go from, actually it's a high school that stops at at the ninth grade. You can go on for all 12 grades, but it, uh, there are some schools that are specifically for kids that want to go into professions like that, baker, plumber, electrician, any of the crafts. And that school stops at the ninth grade and you start your apprenticeship at that point. Sort of switching gears just a little bit, though I think it's really connected to the this whole question that we're exploring around practice. You make a distinction in one of the letters to a young musician that practice and performing are very different things. Mm-hmm. And uh, you write, there's practicing and there's performing, and they're mm-hmm. two very different sides of a coin. Practice mm-hmm. is a solitary act, while performing involves an audience, large mm-hmm. or small. Having an audience changes everything. And obviously, in this context, you're talking about music. But mm-hmm. I wondered if there were an equivalent to meditation practice, which is often such a solitary endeavor, is there some sort of equivalent of performance? I mean, the one thing that came to mind was that life was something like that. Oh, I definitely, when I read your question, I thought that's exactly what it is. You can be incredibly good at meditating by yourself or even within a zendo, and then you go out and you cannot handle people or you cannot even ask for a certain item at the grocery market or find your way around or deal with with the tempers of your fellow human beings, that would be the equivalent of performance, whereas the practicing is much more solitary, or at least in a group that is very controlled if you do it in a zendo. 
there's a definite need, I think, for most people to do both in order to function. Of course, you could say there are musicians that never perform or that choose not to perform or do a thing that's somewhat in between, like Glenn Gould, for example. He stopped at the height of his power in, I think, he might have been 30 or 32. And from then until his death, when he was 51, I believe, he only recorded. He never performed. He was offered enormous amounts of money, and he just didn't want to perform. He didn't want that pressure on him, so all he did was record. It's interesting. The image that comes to mind is sort of like a solitary meditator up in the cave, a yogi that would Mm -hmm. choose not to kind of go out and teach or something. Yeah, and that's fine. I mean, I think there's a wonderful commitment in that and i think it all depends on what the character of a a person is that's to me a very valid choice and i'm sometimes lamenting the fact that that is no longer a choice for the glenn goulds in the world because you cannot make a living from recorded music so Mm. there was really only a short brief period probably from around 1950 till the end of that century that you could even do that like Glenn Gould and say, I'm not performing anymore. I'm only um, recording. So I guess maybe to wrap up, I wondered if there were any things that you wanted to say to a group of listeners called Buddhist geeks. Before the interview, we were talking about this (laughs) idea that a geek can be someone who's really uh, disconnected from the body in some way. And this Mm -hmm. is something that Christopher Titmus brought up when we talked with him also. I thought that was actually a really good point and something that it's really helpful for people that may have a natural proclivity to think a lot and to engage mm-hmm. with technology and sit in front of a screen all day like so many people that probably yeah. listen to the show do. From the imagery I remember, it was something that started somewhere in the 50s where there were sci-fi movies where you had the brain that was living in some kind of nutrient inside a glass box, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in some sci-fi movies. So many people are almost uncomfortable with their bodies. They just seem like, you know, extra meat you're carrying around. With Zen, I think we want to know that your head and your body works together. And in Chinese, the same character is usually translated into English, both as heart and mind, because the body and the mind cannot really be separated. But it's sort of been a thing that in the Western world, we've been doing for the longest time, you know, sitting in cars, driving hours to work every day, barely moving around, sitting in a cubicle. The body is just basically something that moves our brain from A to B. The other day, I I was talking to my son about practicing the instruments that he plays. I talked to him about, would you actually like sitting at the piano and just thinking the notes? And we were talking about how much pleasure it is to actually use your fingers. You actually do something with your hands. And I think that's a big disconnect that we're trying to heal these days in Western society. That whole idea of the what Jaron Lanier calls the geek rapture of pouring your mind into some computer and hoping that that you can live forever. To me, it seems our mind is actually the brain and the body. So I think bringing that together is really important.
Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.